Hi, I'm Jay Jacobs, and welcome to another episode of Going Beyond the Scale. If you saw some of the posts earlier, um, I call this a well, quote marks, being buffet, because today's guest truly, uh, and we'll see if she says otherwise, but truly to me is extremely um, special because beyond what she's done personally, I don't believe there's ever been a contestant on Biggest Loser after 18 seasons now, I believe it is, or 19, 18, whatever, that not only was a contestant uh, and a successful contestant, and then successful in the world of what she wanted to do um, well-being-wise afterwards, and the fact that she also is a well-respected doctor and also worked with Dr. Heisinger. So what I would like you to do when we're talking today, I would like you to listen to the shoulder of not what you may think of as a biggest loser shoulder, but really from uh, the shoulder, which I think is really necessary for doctors, for people that are um, in the medical field to really understand what is possible and what really can um, help you on whatever journey you're on. So with that being said, I would like to introduce Dr. Jen Kearns. Thank you for being here, hey. Jen. Thank My you. pleasure. Thanks so for having I, me. I said to Jen right before we went on, I said, the great thing in, in talking with you is, yes, I have show notes and things, and we had talked beforehand, but I know that if I literally, I'm in a room that has a dartboard. If I threw a dart at this wall behind me, I know she could talk, um, not just going on and on, but she could talk about something that would really be helpful for us. So today, um, I want Jen to be able to kind of share her background of, you know, her where she grew up, where, when, not where she grew up, but when she grew up, like what she um, experienced from her well-being journey, challenges with her weight, um, that transitioning into what she did on Biggest Loser. And then really, I want to concentrate on all of that after Biggest Loser, because there's a lot of things that she has done and is continuing to do that this will be the first of more podcasts with her, because there truly is a wealth of information. And what I like is the things that she's doing. I think are great because it's not about losing weight. It's it's also about just the way in which you're thinking about your health and well-being. So so with that being said, Jet, like what just in case people don't know, like give us an idea of like when you grew up and your challenges with your weight and how all this came about for you actually getting on Biggest Loser as well. Wow, yeah. You know, I was one of those babies who was obese at birth. <laughs> <laughs> my poor mom had to have an emergency C-section because she couldn't get me out. I think I was over nine pounds at birth. Wow. And um, and so was really chubby even as a toddler and young, you know, a child. Um, pediatricians put us on low fat diets, which was the fad back in the 70s, you know, so I would get skim milk instead of 2% or whole and, but lots of sugar <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I just, you know, learned from a very young age that sugar made me feel better. I mean, I remember being at a babysitter's house before I was even in kindergarten and skinning my knee and being fed cake to make me stop crying and thinking, well, this is a good deal if I just have to skin mm. my knee to get that kind of a reward, you know? So so the, the habit of like using food and especially sugar to make myself feel better, I think was ingrained at a very young age. And my family, my whole family has struggled with our weight, uh, extended family, immediate family. So there's certainly a genetic component, but there's also a lot of, you know, like my parents didn't, I don't think know better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we would have dessert every night after dinner and I started going after school to 
pick up snacks on the way home. And, you know, I just, that's how we ate. We ate all the, the deliciousness that, you know, American corporations can produce for us. So um, it, it became more of an issue for me, I think, in high school when I really was feeling my difference at that really tender mm -hmm. age in the teenage years and boys not liking me and me always having a crush on someone and them never liking me back and all that sort of teen angst that comes with being a, a morbidly obese teenager. And... Um, and through college, at my heaviest, I was in college, I probably gained the freshman 50 instead of 15. Mm -hmm. um, and was about 300 pounds at my highest when I was in college, had never been thin my whole life. And so finally in medical school, we were in a lecture. It was The turning point for me was in my medical school, they actually taught us a course on sex and had us watch as a class, watch different pornographic movies with the intention of trying to facilitate comfort among all of us with various different sexual um, situations so that we would then at least feel comfortable being able to talk to patients about anything that they needed to talk to us about hmm. as doctors. So we watched, you know, clips of regular, um, you know, heterosexual sex, you know, vanilla sex, kinky sex, gay sex, um, different races, you know, someone who's disabled having sex. <laughs> I mean, it wow. was like a crazy day. And then there's a video of two people with obesity having sex. And the, the fit young man sitting in front of me leans over to his buddy next to him and makes a comment about how completely disgusting that is. Wow. And I thought like, and I'm sitting right behind him with my, you know, belly hanging over the little desk that doesn't fit me because I'm too big for it. It's one of those desks that don't move, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm squeezed into it and so uncomfortable already. And I thought like, God, he can watch gay sex and disabled sex and any kind of probably animal sex. And that's all okay. But it's not okay for fat people to have sex. Like, wow. really? That's how discriminated I sort of felt yeah. against. I mean, I felt really shamed, fat shamed, without him sure. realizing I was sitting behind him. Of course, I don't think he ever would have said it had he known I heard him. But it was so, like, my feelings were so hurt. And at the same time, I was thinking, I'm in medical school now. I'm going to be a doctor. And I don't think that my patients are going to trust me if they think that I can't manage my own health and they're going to think that the reason why I'm fat is because I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And of course it wasn't a lack of knowledge by that point. It might've been when I was a child and ingraining sure. all of these habits. But by the time I was halfway through med school, I knew the things that were likely to make me thinner or make me heavier and, you know, increase my body fat or not. But, but doing the right thing is different from knowing what the right thing is or thinking you might know. And, um, and I just, it was sort of that last straw moment where I was like, I, this, I have to do something about this. Number one, I had never had a relationship. <laughs> I was in my early twenties and I really wanted to get a guy. <laughs> so I was driven by that, you know, classic, I want to sure. look better like thing that a lot of people, you know, and people call that a superficial reason, but I think it's important 
for, for many of us to feel good in our skin. So that was a big part of it. But, but the other big part of it was now I'm going to be a doctor and I really want people to trust me. And I think that based on the way society acts, I, I felt like I would have a better shot at people trusting me if I were able to do it. So I just, that was it. Like the commitment level that I had just went through the roof. And I basically, I joined Weight Watchers at that time. And I followed it to a T. It was so long ago. It was even before they had the point system, which is of course now famous. But um, at the time I was checking off little check boxes of how many bread servings I had that day and how many veggie servings and stuff like that. But I followed it so strictly and I started walking and I started running. So I would uh, the Weight Watchers meeting was like 10 blocks away from my apartment in med school. And I would walk there and walk back. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to run half a block. I'm just going to jog half a block and then walk the rest of the way. And I started very gradually like adding another half a block and adding, you know, and as I lost weight and was a little bit more mobile, it got easier for me. And so I ended up running. I became a runner and lost all of my weight. I got down to about 145 pounds by the time I started my third year of med school. And um, and maintenance I, I find to be harder than the weight loss itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think many people with, with mm-hmm. a significant weight loss can probably um, commiserate with that. And so, you know, through the stressors of life, which included soon thereafter me going through, you know, internship and residency as a doctor, which is working 80 hours a week and being up all night and it's a really intense and stressful time for doctors and um, meeting my then fiance and then going through a unsuccessful marriage and divorcing him within two years, moving across the country, starting a new job as a professor in San Diego. I mean, all kinds of like every life stressor you could think of I had within a few years. And so I regained all of my weight. I mean, emotionally eating. Sure. Cause food makes me feel better. Sure. <laughs> And so um, that was the point at which The Biggest Loser had started to air. So I was living in San Diego, working at UCSD, and um, I was just separating from my husband and I had regained all of my weight and I was feeling really dissatisfied. I wasn't happy with my current physical state. Uh, I wasn't happy in my job. I was, uh, you know, not loving my position where I was. And so I just thought, I'm going to show up for a casting call. They were having mm-hmm. casting calls. I think season two was running and they they had a live, an open casting call in San Diego that I popped into and somehow convinced someone who didn't know what they were doing that I should be on the show. <laughs> so, um, so that's how I came to be cast as a contestant. And I say now I'm really grateful that I was not one of the actual contestants that season. It was season three. And so it was this weird season where there were 50 of us and, um, you know, each, each state was represented. I was representing the state of Virginia, which I found ironic because I was neither born in Virginia, nor (laughs) did I live in Virginia at the time. I had lived in Virginia for a few years when I was a resident. So I guess the, the production felt that that was good enough, but, um, But so I was one of the 36 people who basically got to be there for the premiere and then had to go home and lose the weight by ourselves and then come back for the finale. And so I never was even miked. 
my wow. season, which I'm like really grateful for actually, because I'm not really great at holding my tongue and being put <laughs> in stressful situations on purpose on the show to create drama, like guaranteed, I would have said something that would have like ended my professional career as a physician. So mm. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm you know, I'm like, everything worked out the way it was supposed to. Wow. So I lost, um, I lost weight again as a contestant on The Biggest Loser. I followed a calorie, uh, 1310 calorie a day diet, as I recall, and um, exercised twice a day, most days before and after work, and ended up losing 108 pounds for my season. Wow. Um, so yeah, and during that time as a contestant, I just emailed Dr. Heizenga because of course I'm a doctor and I just wanted to network with him. And actually I just asked him how he came to do obesity medicine because I just wanted yeah. to know because I wasn't happy in my job. And um, and I just said, can I help you with research or is there anything, you know, like just kind of reached out to him and he's like, why don't you drive up to LA and we'll talk. And I was like, great. And so I did, I drove the two hours from San Diego and he's like, you're gonna start working for me in January. This is how much I'm gonna pay you. You're, and I was like, like I was so excited, I couldn't yeah. believe it. But, you know, he he basically offered to salary me for the year, and so I did. I left San Diego. I moved to LA after our season was over. So our finale was in December, and I started working for him in January. So I got to work in his practice and help him out there, and especially, of course, what I really wanted to do, which was be a doctor for The Biggest Loser, for a couple of seasons after. Um, I was a contestant. So I got to do that for seasons four and five, which was super fun. And then of course, you know, Dr. H at the end of that year asked me to stay and to buy into his practice in LA. Mm -hmm. Cause at that point he was just paying me a salary and, and he's like, you're going to have to like actually buy into this practice and be here forever. Mm -hmm. And I sort of had a panic attack because I was, you know, newly single, still a little chubby. I, I sort of feel like, smart chubby girls stock is worth a little more on the East Coast than maybe in LA. And I just didn't feel like it wasn't my city. I just, you know, I didn't have community there the way that I yeah. had in other places. The only people I knew there were people in the industry and our Beverly Hills famous, you know, clientele in his practice. And I didn't really feel like I had any, you know, yeah. normal like friends and family. And so it just didn't feel like, I just couldn't see myself living there forever. So I um, got off the pot and ran home to DC where I where I grew up and uh, and I've been here ever since. So that was about 13 years ago now since I left LA. And yeah. so since being back in DC, I've been working at the um, DC VA Medical Center. So I, I'm a federal employee and I take care of veterans. And I initially started as a hospitalist, you know, just doing internal medicine for inpatients. But um, soon after I moved, I got my board certification in obesity medicine and started, we sort of created a new bariatric surgery program at our hospital. And so I was helping with the medical aspects of that. I'm not a surgeon, but I do the other stuff. And we've sort of expanded, you know, over the years for me to also do, um, just regular non-surgical weight management as well with veterans. So uh, the, the majority of my medical practice now is, is obesity medicine, which is perfect because it aligns with my passion, of course, my near and dear to my heart for personal reasons, obviously. You know, Jen, 
this brings up a thought that I've had tons of people over the years and not being a doctor, I couldn't really answer it. I can't tell you how many people that have issues with their weight, as you know, like you said, from the fat shaming, they feel uncomfortable in their skin and, you know, and you can hide it any way you want. You can hide it by being funny or whatever. Um, But in your practice and the other doctors or in the, in what you've learned, um, does anybody talk about how doctors establish a rapport with people? Because almost everybody that I know, they like, they don't want to go to the doctor because the doctor basically does the old thing. You need to lose weight. You need to eat more fruits and vegetables. You need to eat less like that stuff. Like how much in the world I got the gastric bypass is is, that's a place, but in the world of what your, your specialty is, is it, is it body and mind? Like, how does that work? Because it's a big issue for a lot of people. Yeah, it's certainly not. Well, I've it's been 20 years since I went through med school. So I, when I say it's not taught in med school, I don't know if that's okay. true today. Maybe certainly um, fat shaming and how patients are approached and things like that are a big focus of the main obesity medicine organizations that are out there right now trying to help educate physicians and practitioners, healthcare practitioners about how to approach patients and using people language first. So for example, saying this is a person with obesity instead of this is an obese person. Mm-hmm. Um, just little little subtle things like that that can make a difference. And, um, and so it, it is a big area of interest with the, the Obesity Society and with the Obesity Medicine Association. And I think that they're really trying to sort of get more education out there for people so that people with obesity or with overweight um, can feel more comfortable seeking help. Certainly anybody who's certified by the American Board of Obesity Medicine should be easily approachable by a patient. And you can yeah. actually search on their website to find um, okay, practitioners, to yeah, practitioners who do weight management who are certified by the ABOM in you can search by state and things like that. So if you want to see a doctor who who specializes in weight management and who can um, probably approach you in a more comfortable way than a standard primary care doc who, and to be fair, primary care docs have a hundred thousand things they're supposed to worry about in 10 minutes, you know? And, and so it's just hard. I mean, it's hard to sit down and have a heart to heart with a patient about how they're feeling when you've got 10 minutes to cover colon cancer screening, blood pressure, you know, I mean, like, yeah, no, it makes, it makes, it makes sense. (laughs) That's one of the things I've said to people as well is that, look, um, we have great medical professionals, but you have to really be the doctor of whatever you're going to do in terms of that. You don't need to be the person that knows it, but you do have to be the person that like what you said, you got to research, you got to go out there, you got to ask the questions. If you're not getting the answers instead of get pissed off at people, like you need to be able to do it. And the answers are out there. So I'm glad that you, one of the things we'll do after this as well, I want to be able to share some of the things that people can go to because that will be helpful. That's a good solution because at least I think if you go to a specialist like that, you got a better shot at somebody listening to you, you know, overall. The other question I had for you, like how tall are you? Five, six. Okay, so you're, you're medium height. So, mm-hmm. okay, so from the weight as far as uh, balance and stuff like that. Um, the other thing that uh, when I listened to when you were interviewed by Marty Wolf a while ago um, when, yeah. with, with Chubby Talk, I, I did not realize that you were involved with uh, part of the whole thing that was the, was it the CDC or what it had to do with it, the study? And the thing was interesting. The NIH, with, yeah. 
what I love what you shared, because when it came out, for me at least, and I read it, I got it. For me, from my perspective, I looked at it as for a lot of people to go like, oh, this was a screwed up in metabolism, but I didn't have that. But all I had this when I read it, I was reading through the photo like, okay, now I have a reason I can just gain my way back. They screwed me up. For yeah. me personally, um, I have had my own ways in which I've been able to keep the weight off and be healthy and all that. And, you know, a lot of people say when you're, you get older, your metabolism is bad or whatever. For me personally, I've not found that to be the case. And most recently, I've spent more time not only understanding body composition and the effect of what happens with what we're doing, but I'm on a very light person trying to understand metabolism mm -hmm. because I think for me, at least, and I think for a lot of people, it's a missing ingredient because just as you know, calories in, calories out, that's one part, but there's a whole world of why these things happen. I'd love yeah. you to share what you, what you saw from a contestant slash doctor, what did that study overall show? And if I heard you right, and if I didn't tell me, I got the fact that, that we are affected by rapid weight loss. But I also did hear you just say, if you lose weight rapidly, you're screwed and your metabolism is done the rest of your life. So what, what is the truth behind that? Yeah, I, there's a lot of conflicting research on this topic. Um, there's another group who's led by a researcher named Vicki Catnacci. And um, her, her, what was she at that point? Probably a PhD student. Um, mm -hmm. Danielle Ostendorf published a paper after our paper came out a few years later, looking at people who had lost weight retrospectively, looking backwards in time and seeing if it looked like they had um, metabolic adaptation or a slowing of their metabolism after weight loss. And their conclusions for their paper was that, no, there was no evidence of metabolic adaptation when they were looking at patients who were enrolled in the National Weight Control Registry, which is a huge database mm -hmm. of patients who have lost at least 30 pounds, I think is the the minimum, if I recall. I'm sorry, I didn't read up on it right before this um, mm -hmm. show today, Jay, I'm sorry, but, that's okay. no, but it's okay. like a, a huge database of successful weight losers and people who are maintaining weight loss. And, and, um, and, but the interesting thing is the headline of their paper was there is no metabolic adaptation. But then if you read in the details of their paper, they said, except for in people with massive weight loss. So I think there may be something to the degree and the rapidity, uh, how quickly you lose it and how much you lose. And when you yeah. lose a massive amount in a fast time, your body thinks something is going horribly wrong. And you, I don't know if you experienced this, but when I was the doctor on the show, I had many of the female contestants, you know, crying to me about how their hair was falling out. Mm -hmm. And there's a condition where you lose your hair because your body is so stressed. Mm -hmm. And so that massive weight loss is, is a huge stress on the body. And you, your body thinks you're starving to death, which you, can't, you are, right? I mean, the balance right. of exercise and food when you lose weight like that. Um, and so it's going to do whatever it can to conserve energy. And so it makes sense that it would drop your metabolism. The thing is, is that the other thing though, is that if you look at our study, that the NIH study on the biggest loser contestants and their metabolisms, if you look at the actual amount of calories that they were eating every day at the six year later mark, it was quite a, a high level. It was like, I don't know, 3,400 calories a day or something like that. And again, I'm so sorry, Jay, I didn't look up the 
study right before we talked today. So I don't remember yeah. the exact number, but it was a high number of calories. So it's not like, it's not like Biggest Loser contestants are screwed and they can only eat 1500 calories a day and they still regain all their weight. Right, right, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, really ultimately what we found was that people who were exercising more did the, the best job at maintaining weight loss and people who were less active in the long run were the ones who tended to regain more of their weight, but that mm -hmm. all people were eating. I think the other thing that you mentioned with Marty, you said something about, which at least from my experience has been the exercise part. I, when I talk to people about exercise, it should be something that has to do with movement, has to do with energy, uh, obviously strengthening all that, but not as a hammer against going crazy and eating because that actually happened around here where uh, people that were, sometimes I'll do some part-time work navigation at our local Y. The people that would be like obsessed with working out three, four hours and be in the Y when COVID happened and it got shut down, I'd be in town. I'm like, oh my God, that person, like they get a boatload. What, what the hell happened? And it's because, and as you know, from Biggest Loser, a lot of Biggest Loser contestants were, I was not an athlete, but I was somebody that was a freaking binge eater, a secret eater. I mean, my blue up to 435 pounds, not because of the bad metabolism, because I was a master at the drive through and everything else that nobody saw. But um, yeah. athletes typically get on the show because they are like fueling this body and energy and all that. And then all of a sudden they're not competing, then like they blow up. So at least to me, this is the spot that I knew was my issue before. I learned a lot on Biggest Loser. I continue to learn after Biggest Loser, but I've the the idea of uh, the exercise is I, I like it. But for me, and I think you said it with Marty, was that it's really like 80 to 90% of what you're eating anyway. Is that true or not? Yeah, I always like, I mean, what I always tell my patients is that diet is 90% of weight loss and, mm exercise and sleep and everything else is like the other 10%. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but you know, the amount of exercise, the amount of calories that your body burns every day, the vast majority of those calories are just keeping your body alive, mm -hmm. running your brain, fueling your brain, fueling your heart, running digestion, like all of those things. The amount that physical activity contributes to the total is really quite small. So, mm -hmm. It, when people exercise an hour a day, even if you're running for an hour, you don't really burn that many calories. Maybe you burn 400 calories jogging for an hour. Yeah. And you know, you can eat oh. a king oh. size, a bag of Kim's king size M&Ms and that's there right there. That's it. So it's, mm -hmm. it's very easy to overshoot the calories. If you're eating processed foods that are sort of created to make us want them. Yeah. Um, you know, these aren't natural foods that would be in our environment, right? They're not what we evolved with. And so our brains are really, our human brains evolved during a time for thousands of years when we didn't have food. I mean, we mm -hmm. had to go and hunt it and find it and dig for it. And there would be a day or two where you might not eat. And so we're, our bodies have been created to store energy, to store fat for those mm -hmm. periods of famine or fasting. And our brains have also been evolved to help us want to binge on high reward value, high calorie foods when we do find them, because that would keep us alive as a species, right? Mm -hmm. 
And, um, and it's really only in the past, I don't know what, hundred years where there have been sort of the industrialization of food and, you know, the creation of food products that are not natural, that would not have ever been found in nature. I mean, the refining of grains and turning things into powders and then making them into other foods like sugar beets or sugar cane into sugar powder or, um, you know, flour that didn't yeah. exist. You know, I mean, you could grind corn and wheat, but these things in combination aren't, don't exist in nature. And there's no, there's nothing in nature that I can think of that combines sugar and flour. I'm sorry, sugar and fat together. There are avocados and olives, which are fat, but not sugary Mm -hmm. and animals. You can eat an animal or a fish and that's going to be protein and fat, but not sugar. And then Mm -hmm. you can find sugar like honey or fruit, but they don't typically have fat in them. And mm-hmm. so we have, we humans have figured out a way to what combine a- sugar and fat together in brownies and Oreos and all of these products or flour and fat, which is similar to sugar and fat. It's a refined carbohydrate, right? So Doritos yeah. and things like that. And um, the only thing that I can think of and that occurs naturally that combines things in that way is breast milk. Ah. And so it sort of makes sense, right? That yeah. that we would want our babies and our infants to overeat and beef up because God, we want them to live. Yeah. And um, and so I think it's funny that we've sort of, you know, humans have tapped into that reward pathway in the brain and create manufactured these Franken foods that are intended to make us overeat them because that's how the companies make money. No, their job is not to make us healthy. Their job is to make money for their shareholders. And they're doing a great job of creating foods that we want to eat a lot of. So um, so as long as we're around all of these foods like Oreos and Doritos and things like that, and especially foods that are marketed as healthy, right? Uh, like breakfast cereals that say, you know, heart healthy on it when really it's a refined grain or, um, you know, Greek yogurt, that sugar sweetened Greek yogurt that's like vanilla flavor or something that you think you're eating something healthy because it's Greek yogurt, but like it's really sugar. Those foods tend to put weight on people. And there was a really great study by Kevin Hall, who was the head researcher on the study that I helped participate with. Um, He, in 2019, his group published this awesome clinical trial from the NIH where they had people who were overweight or had obesity um, live in their metabolic ward for a month. And they fed them two different diets for two weeks each. One diet was ultra processed. So it had foods like, you know, tortillas, like quesadillas made out Mm -hmm. of refined grains or lemonade or um, the flavored Greek yogurt, like I mentioned. And then the other diet was an unprocessed diet where, but it was matched for the exact same amount of protein, same amount of fat, same amount of sugar. It's just that the sugar in the unprocessed diet was all in fruit. Whereas in the processed diet, it was often added to things like yogurt or fig newtons or whatever. Um, So they matched for fiber, fat, protein, sugar, salt, everything was matched. And they said, eat however much you want until you're satisfied. And they measured their body composition and labs and all kinds of fancy, you know, their metabolism in the metabolic chamber and um, exactly how much they were eating every day and all of that. And they found that when people were presented with the highly processed foods, 
they ate more than 500 calories every day, just naturally, without thinking that they were necessarily overeating. And without rating that diet as being more delicious, they actually rated mm. both diets as being equally pleasant and equally familiar. So it wasn't like they hated the unprocessed food and that's why they didn't eat it, you know? Um, and they actually gained a pound a week when they were on the processed foods. And similarly, when they ate the unprocessed diet, which was things like whole eggs cracked into an omelet with fresh veggies cooked in olive oil. They had potatoes, like they would just chop up potatoes and cook them in olive oil for breakfast potatoes or, you know, foods like that, that were like yeah. mother nature made them basically. Um, fresh fruit, you know, et cetera. They, they lost a pound a week and they ate more than 500 calories less every day, just naturally and feeling just as satisfied. So I think that's just good evidence that, you know, those types of foods I think are the, the main problem. And so what I like to tell my patients and my clients, my coaching clients is sugar and flour. If I have to simplify it as a, yeah. as a, what should you avoid? It's added sugars. So the only sugar I want people eating is in fresh fruit, dried mm. fruit's tricky. Cause it's just concentrating yeah. all of that sugar into this little bit, right? So you can eat a whole handful of dried apricots, but you're probably not going to eat 20 fresh apricots. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so I say, you know, dried fruit's not the best, but, um, fresh fruit for your sugars and no flour because flour is that refined grain that really seems to cause weight gain in people. So that's like tortillas and bread and crackers and you know, all of those foods. Like if you think about eating a meal and you, you get, let's say you eat steak and potatoes and bread and you're full and somebody's like, Oh, do you want another steak? Most people are not going to eat another steak when they're really yeah. full. They're like, no, I'm full. Oh, do you have room for some ice cream? Heck yeah, I have there's always room for dessert, you know, because sure. like the reward value is different in our brains for, and bread. And maybe you'll have one more piece of that warm crusty bread with some melted butter on it. There might be a little room for that, always, but probably always. not room for more broccoli or steak. <laughs> so, you know, you can just tell what's like, what our brains are triggered to really want. Those foods are probably to be avoided. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> One of, one of the things I want to make sure one of the things I want to make sure that I get you to, to kind of w literally weigh in on is the reason why I call this going beyond the scale. And ironically, as you know, on this loser, you live and die each week by the scale. OK, and that whole bit. And it's not necessarily body composition, because, as you know, before, well, at least being on the show, you had to be hydrated. You couldn't just sweat out. So they would always check urine before we get on the scale. And but Having lived 10 years post Biggest Loser, um, mm -hmm. our 10 year finale is on May 24th. And what I found was if I look at all the people I've talked to or navigated or coached or whatever, and then in the past two years, Glory and I have been literally with over 500 people uh, where we've, we've had these monthly, we sit down with body composition. Originally when we sat down and did that, it was because we figured, well, people will learn something. What we found was when people had a chance to understand the now i'm not talking doctor wise but basic layperson how their body's constructed what i say to people there's no good or bad numbers when we have this first one it's a baseline this is your asset this is what you got and then what happens is i don't know you don't know even a doctor probably won't know 
you're going to go month to month and we're going to start to see how is your body reacting or not reacting to what you're doing or not doing. And we're going to start to learn. And what I found out of that was we'll have people that will, for the first time in their life, start to have some freedom around their body size and shape and start to actually feel empowered to do things. And the, the one, this is not a research study, but it's the little layperson thing. What was so crazy is I'd have people go away and go on a trip or they go away on a vacation or it would be holiday. And, and I would tell them, whatever you do, please come back. I don't care. I'm not going to shame you. You're never going to make you wrong. But let's just see what happened. And they would always come back going in their mind, I've gained five to 10 pounds, of which 99.9% didn't gain any weight. And sometimes they lost a pound or two. And I said, look, I have no clue other than the fact that I think now you're not working, you're not stressed, whatever your cortisol level and whatever hormones are going, all this stuff started to calm down. Maybe you got a little more rest. Yeah, you drank a little more. Better. All that kind of stuff. And, and so what I've found is that, that the area that I've been focusing on is this area of like starting to get people to have a different tail of their scale, understand that and be driven by body composition. So when I saw you talk about what you're going to be getting down and, and losing weight and then doing that, and then I was watching your scale without knowing everything. I'm like, why is she worrying about those pounds? Because from my perspective, I'm like, you look like you're fit. You, I know you're healthy. There's not a lot. It's like, how much more is your body going to quote give up? And then I found when we talked that you actually went and got the body composition. Mm -hmm. Now you got that. And what is that for you? There you go. The embodied body composition. What for you? What is it? What have you <laughs> learned out of that? I mean, I'd be curious to see what their numbers, because I've had enough. I've li literally yeah. done like 5,000 consoles. So what have you learned out of doing that? Was it the first time you ever did it? It was the first time I ever did it. Yeah, I did a DEXA, of course, as yeah. a contestant on The Biggest Loser many years ago. And right. um, and the, that was the last time I had body composition done. So I had this done because now I'm particularly focused and interested in Alzheimer's prevention, which is a whole mm -hmm. other story. But yeah. my mother has Alzheimer's disease and I have a very strong family history of it. And so mm -hmm. I'm at quite high risk. And now today I'm really driven by my desire to maximize my health for preserving my mind basically mm. to try because about one third of Alzheimer's cases are actually preventable with lifestyle change. And we never really knew that until the past decade or so. So, um, so preventing it before it happens is possible for many people, not everyone. And maybe right. I will have it one day anyway, but even if I do get it, at least maybe I can delay it five or 10 years. So, um, so anyway, as part of my own personal efforts in Alzheimer's prevention, I've had the great blessing to be accepted as a patient in the clinic of Dr. Richard Isaacson, who is the sort of leading Alzheimer's prevention expert mm. in the world, probably certainly wow. in the US. And he's at Cornell in Manhattan. And he actually is the one who asked me to go and get an in-body 770 um, specifically to look at my body composition, because as you like to focus on as well, and as he agrees, it's not about what your scale weight says, it's right. about how much body fat you have and how much lean tissue you have. And he wants my body fat to be a certain percentage, you know, or lower, ideally, to maximize my chances at, you know, brain health. And so what he had suggested to me was that my body fat be preferably 26 or lower, mm -hmm. 27 maybe, above that is bad. Um, and you know, the reason, and, and mine in fact, at, for this 
scan was 28.9. So I am a little bit over fat compared to what would be the ideal for Alzheimer's prevention. So I am still trying to lose some body fat. Not that I'm not happy in my skin now, or mm -hmm. I mean, I'm 150 pounds lighter than I was like, please, sure. I, I get how lucky I am and how, uh, you know, I'm the whole different person, obviously. So it's not that I'm unhappy with my current weight so much as really driven by this health goal that's just super important to me, especially now that I have a four-year-old son. So um, for me, focusing on the scale is just the easiest piece of data that I can collect. It's mm -hmm. not that I think, and, and checking a daily weight, which I do and which I often suggest to people, I think can be helpful to actually take some of the drama out of it. Because when you see that your weight is two or three pounds heavier the next day than it was the day prior, you know yep. it's not that you gained fat of that amount. It's the salt that was in the sushi you had, or it's you didn't poop or something, yeah. you know, something has changed. And obviously that's why the scale weight has changed. So for, I've been taking a daily weight for probably 15 years and, um, and it's just data. I mean, it's just neutral data. It's the, the pull of gravity on my body <laughs> mm -hmm. and it helps give me a raw piece of information. Now I'm really curious because Dr. Isaacson had me change up my exercise routine. So I write a blog and I had posted a, a blog about what my exercise routine was probably a couple months ago now. And at that time it was really just elliptical is yeah. all I did. And he, asked me to change my routine and said, I need to do a couple of days a week of strength training, which I was not doing and try to increase my lean tissue mass and some high intensity interval training a couple days a week, but not every day. And then mostly just endurance aerobic exercise otherwise with the goal of eventually repeating one of these body compositions and hopefully decreasing my body fat and increasing my lean tissue with all of that. So I'm kind of excited to see, you know, today my scale weight is a couple pounds lighter, maybe three pounds lighter than it was when I did this in body, uh, but I've been strength training twice a week. So I'm curious to, to know like, hmm, maybe I've, maybe I've lost five pounds of fat and gained two pounds of muscle. I don't know. You know, it's kind of, yeah. Interesting. It's it's exciting to get the body composition. And I was really happy to actually see the the type of scan I got has a visceral body fat um as well. So it tells you what your, you know, belly fat is compared to the rest of your body. And that's really the fat that's most associated with metabolic problems like diabetes and metabolic syndrome and stuff like that. And I was pleased that even though my total body is a little bit over fat my visceral fat was lower than the average woman of my age. So um, so it just gave me a lot more information than obviously a scale ever could. Yeah, I've, I've found that what's happened, like when you talk about visceral fat or any of it, what yeah. when you start to talk to people about making a change, I think the biggest freedom that happens is when you talk about food or you talk about um, cravings or desires or whatever, they get some permission to understand. I guess the best way to describe it is if you, let's say you weigh, you, you said you weigh what, 150? Mm -hmm. Okay. So for some people, when they think they need, when they say they would need to lose five or 10 pounds, whatever that is, even though that five or 10 could be lost, the number that sticks in their head is a big number. It's not the five or 10. They actually think they're 140 pounds of fat. It sounds weird, 
But mm -hmm. what I've found is that it's sort of like a bank account. When you actually see what's in the account, you know if it's going to be tight or not. And it takes some time. But I have seen profound changes, and not only in people's health, but mentally, it seems to have given, especially people that have issues with food and obsessions or the stories that they call themselves, I'm a this, I'm addicted. I'm not saying that-, that That's me. Oh, I, I've always said, right. I'm a sugar addict, right? It's, right. And but, it's just but, a belief. It's just a made up thought in my head. And you're gonna find that over time that you will literally um, stop that. It was funny because like last night we had, for instance, my wife has seen me with every antique known to man. And I had these four tacos last night that we got. And there's, I, I set them up so those nights because I believe that also it's also how you present things. But so I set this thing, I take a picture, I take a picture. All that, that's why I visually journal. Yeah. That's, that's why I do it. So I'm sitting there, I'm eating in front of TV. I don't always do it, but I'm eating in front of TV. She's eating, whatever. And she said, are you, you're not, she kind of laughed at me. She's like, you're not eating the tortillas. And so this morning, it kind of pissed me off. Cause I'm like, you know me, what are you, why are you doing this to me? And so we're in the car today and, and I said, you know, it really bothered me about why did you do that? You know that that, and what she said, no, I was actually, I was actually kind of laughing cause it's like, she see me get to the place where it's no longer, I talk about, I have a challenge. I have a, like, I don't talk that way. It's like, if I, I told her, I told her the story. I said, I put the four on the plate. I wouldn't look good. I thought to myself, I might eat those four tortillas with this. I might not, maybe I'll eat one. But the point is, when you get to me, when you think of being fat free, it becomes you literally can have your cake and eat it too, and mm -hmm. actually friggin' enjoy it. And to me, mm -hmm. that's the part you get to a place. And I believe, I'm so glad that you're doing it with that. And all the things you know, I think the more that people can understand, literally the numbers and what they do for their body and not be like you, it's not easy to gain. It is easy to gain five pounds, but not overnight. But people say like, oh my God, I gained five pounds. But like what you know, it's water related. So I think what I could talk to you for like 10 hours because every yeah, single thing that you're talking about is is a slice of this. But what, yeah. I, what I, I want to respect your time. And also I obviously would love to have you come back for some other yeah. like things that we could talk about specifically. The one thing that I am curious about, because this is three years ago, and I know what it's like to stop and start something, get busy with other things. Anything going on with your book? Oh my God. I completely abandoned that book for coach training. Okay. So I um, okay. I still have all of the like draft writing that I did and all of the lab results I did for, you know, for, for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, I was planning to write a book about different diets and I put my poor husband, Kevin, and myself through five or six different popular diets for 30 days each, you know, the whole 30 keto vegan, you know, and um, checked really detailed labs on each of us before mm. and after each diet and how much weight we lost and what our measurements were and all of that. And was planning on writing a book um, probably called diet science was what I had in my head. And um, just like talking about different diets and how our experience was with each one and what, you know, just, stuff like that. Yeah. And then I just ended up sort of getting into um, a coaching program for myself to try to reach my goal weight, my final goal weight, and had such a beautiful experience with coaching mm. um, in many aspects of my life, just learning how sort of, uh, it's, it's a big topic, but how thoughts and feelings really create all of our results and sort of harnessing that to be able to achieve goals 
like any goal you want really for me it's a right. weight goal but there are you know other goals too and um and so i ended up you know going through coaching and then enrolling in a school for coach training and doing all of this other stuff so the the book is still to be put out there one day okay. for sure but probably not this year <laughs> i got that so so when you said that i want to make sure um and we'll put up for you know how they can go to your website same thing before but yeah. like what i know you talked about doing the coach so do you actually or is that something that people can um reach out to you and you are you have time to be able to do coaching with them yeah or, or, yeah or, okay. i'm still a full-time doctor so it's yeah. you know limited it's limited on times and availability but um but absolutely i'm i'm um i write a blog and so that's obviously free information that anybody would like sure. to access please do my website's just my name drjenkerns.com and um and on that website you can contact me or you can email me at hello at drjenkerns.com um to ask about one-on-one -on -one coaching if if anyone's interested in in coaching i wouldn't be their doctor um mm -hmm. with a, like a doctor patient relationship but it would be a coaching relationship where i could sort of help identify what their goals are and what what's keeping them back from it and talk about all these details with food and the brain and <laughs> how to get where you want to go um so yeah that would that's sort of and, and especially my passion right now being brain health then i'm yeah. especially interested in helping people who are worried about their own brains and preserving their mind and you know being healthy for that reason um, yeah. maybe who have family members affected by dementia and things like that. Of course I can help anybody who needs help with their weight because that's my jam. But, yeah. um, but brain health is my, my newest passion. So the one thing I'd like to explore another time, and it's a, it's a, let's put it this way. It's a dangerous squirrely place. Um, yeah. and that is for me, at least I'm an advocate for when people talk about body positivity. Mm-hmm. To me, body positivity is about wellness positivity. And I get the whole idea about feeling good about ourselves because it doesn't matter quite frankly, because I work with people that are morbidly obese and people that you look at them and they are trim and slim. And then through body composition, you learn that they're actually called what's called skinny fat. It just means they're, they look trim, but they have a low percentage of lean muscle mass and a higher percentage of body fat. Yeah. I don't care what size somebody is, Body positivity, as you know, is is this issue as much as it's all of this. The mm -hmm. challenge I have with people when they when they really get on a soap opera soapbox about body positivity, to me, the part that's disingenuous would be, and you're a doctor, so help me correct if I'm wrong. I go to myself, if you have cancer and you say cancer doesn't define me, or you have diabetes and diabetes doesn't define me, or whatever that is, if it's something that is affecting your body and your health and well-being it does define you having an early death like we just said brain health or whatever so i think there needs to now that we got people to get their cells feeling better about themselves and mental health is a big issue i do think there needs to be a a a, a good conversation an empowering conversation around body positivity that has to do with how do you find a way to feel good about yourself and then also make sure that you're not fooling yourself where you wake up and you have a stroke or you have Alzheimer's or you have some other morbidity that if one thing I will say COVID did, I think, um, and there's people that don't believe in COVID, but I think what it did is make all of us 
literally all of us realize how susceptible we are and how Kim and I didn't get it when she was in New York every single day around all kinds of people. I'm like, I have no clue because until we got all the masks and everything else done, we were like in the hotbed and Jennifer, all of us, I don't know. It just didn't happen for whatever reason. But I think that I would love to explore with you that kind of a place because I think it's, it's wanted and needed. And I think it would be healthy for all of us to have a more honest conversation about what that looks like. Now, mm -hmm. with that being said, does that make sense or am I totally off target? Oh, absolutely. I think you can have both. I mean, I okay. think that you can love yourself and love how you look and who you are and still want to have a healthier body. And just because you want to lose body fat or to put it simply, lose weight. When we say lose mm -hmm. weight, we mean lose body fat. Body Nobody fat. really wants to lose muscle, right? So no. um, you can still want to lose weight to improve your health and still love yourself and not blame yourself or allow others to shame you for the size that you are now. Right. Um, you know, there are a lot of choices involved, but there's a lot of environment and manipulation by other people and companies and foods and things like that involved too. So we yeah. are in control of what we do, but you know, it's, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. In fact, if you're overweight, and you're overeating foods that are high reward value, that shows that you have a normal human brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what our brain has evolved to do, as we talked about early, earlier right. on today. So um, it's normal for us to want to overeat those foods. And it's normal to develop habits where you use food to make yourself feel better, because it does. It sets off dopamine in the brain. It's rewarding. And it can take away bad feelings and it can bolster positive feelings and make a good experience even better. And so just like any other habit that someone develops, you know, smoking, over drinking, shopping, whatever, um, it's just something that your brain has realized makes you feel better. And so you do it more. And that doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you someone who should tolerate shame from anyone else or shame yourself. And so I think, like, I just think that you can love yourself and love yourself into losing a little bit of fat, too. You don't have to beat yourself then, you know? Yeah, definitely. But it is well, a delicate subject. I agree with you. It and is. It, it is. I don't want to take away from the, you know, body positivity movement and what their goal is, because I think that that goal is super important, is acceptance right. and self-love and not tolerating shaming. I just don't think that that means that you can't also strive to improve your medical health. Yeah. Well, I really want to thank you for being here today. And the other thing I'm going to say, as I said to you before, like my background is branding, marketing, social media, yeah. all that. I would love you to have more of a voice out there because to me, yeah. you're a breath of fresh air because of the fact that um, you know what it's like to have all the the wide world of feelings and how you set this up is perfect because that's your story and i, I love the quote what's most secrets most common i think your relatability with not only you know everyone i think that the fact mm -hmm. that you have this background medically obesity wise and you're living and breathing in that i'm going to be kind of self-appointed just reminding you <laughs> and acknowledging you how good you are at what you're doing and oh, i would really thank you uh, i want to make sure that i'm al always think of me as being somebody there to be like your cheerleader because i think more people need to hear what you're sharing and i get it you got a full-time job you're a doctor you need to do what you're doing but i think that 
Um, definitely, you are different than many of the people that are out there that are sharing some things. And I think it's, it's mm. really going to be helpful for somehow you to find some more ways for your, your story, your uh, education, your expertise to get into the, um, into the hearts and minds of more people. So that's what, that's what we'll, we'll keep looking at and exploring. And, and I would love to have you come back for some other things as we go forward. And uh, if I can pull, you know, you've been very generous with your time today, but pull some time where you can share what you're doing. Absolutely. I would love to. And I really appreciate those kind words, Jay. Thank you so much. You're very it means welcome. a lot to me to hear. Thank you. Thank you. So everybody, thank you for being here today. You, you've seen the information for Dr. Jen Kearns. We're gonna also post some other things. And um, if you haven't shared them with us already, Jen, some of the other links that you mentioned before, um, we'll also post those as well. And mm -hmm. I wanna keep um, posting this again so that if people missed it today, they just get reminded about what you're doing. Cause I really want people to hear what Jen has shared. And most importantly, share it with other people in your life that maybe are thinking they're on the, on the fence about it. Um, she's somebody you can trust. She's somebody that will, she will listen and support you, but you've got to take the first step. You've got to reach out to her and give her a chance to hear what you got up her sleeve. And if she can't help you right away, at least you're connected and who knows, who knows how things will open up. So, so thanks Jen. And Thank I look you. forward to having, having you come back again. So that's it for today, guys. Um, it's Friday and everybody enjoy their weekend. Enjoy tasty, delicious things. Jen and I will and <laughs> move a little bit and feel good about yourself. And we'll be back again. Thanks again, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>